Galatians 5, where we're at. If you've been around churches for quite a while, you've likely heard a sermon series on a list in the Bible, right? The most familiar I can think of is actually the armor, armor of God. I've actually had, I remember two pastors growing up in the Nazarene church and both of them gave a weeks long series on the full armor of God. I know I've even visited a church on vacation where I was catching one of the multi-week series on the full armor of God. I've heard sermon series preached on the Ten Commandments. I've heard of sermon series preached on the attributes of God, which that's not taking directly from a list, but it's going through the Bible and looking at His attributes. And you've probably heard a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And when we think about lists in the Bible, I do see value in dissecting one by one and thinking about individual items, especially if there are other places in the Bible to go to, to flesh out, excuse the pun, uh, the fruits of the Spirit. However, there is something also to be said in understanding a list in the Bible in its context. And it is likely, as Paul or any other writer sat down to write a list in the Bible, and we're actually going to read two of Paul's lists today, they weren't hoping to be exhaustive. Uh, they were just looking to give a generalization or a basic examples of something. Uh, Paul's going to give a list of sinful acts or acts or behaviors here, but we could probably compare his list here with lists he might have elsewhere, Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, for example, and find that the order has changed, or maybe he's more exhaustive in one of the other books. And again, Paul's point is that he's not setting up uh, definitive lists of things, but general pictures, generalizations of things. Uh, what's missing in the fruit of the Spirit, for example, in Galatians 5, might be with what Philip read for us about uh, the Holy Spirit that Jesus uh, brought up, brings up in John 14 through 16. And so my point is all in all of this is that, sure, maybe someday I'll do a series on the fruits of the Spirit, but today we're going to cover all the fruit of the Spirit, and we're just going to try to get the context and content of what Paul is saying uh, generally. And as the book of Galatians is meant to be all read together, this is a continuation, obviously, off of last week's text, and... uh while I am, you know, preaching the list all at once, I actually find it helpful to present this text not chronologically. <laughs> so uh, you'll see how I unpack it and the ways I unpack it here in a bit. But for now, I do invite you to stand one last time if you're able, and let's read Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 26, the end of Galatians 5. We read... The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, debauchery, uh, idolatry and sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy and rage, rivalries, divisions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Let's pray. Father, it's easy whenever we look at these long, long lists, and I have a, a brain that believes every word of God is, is true and it deserves scrutiny and attention and, and we want to soak up these things. But Father, we do trust as, as your spirit moved Paul to write, Paul was writing and sometimes he wrote these things probably rather quickly and help us to get the spirit that he wrote this in to understand what he is saying so that we might apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, help us to rely on you in our day to day living, not to rely on lists and checkbooks and check marks and are we doing this? Are we feeling that? And instead help us to, to trust that your spirit is alive and active and works in us. Help us to be obedient to each and everything you call us to do. Uh, we ask that you would be the one speaking and not I. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To bring you up to speed and, and help, hopefully help this to make more sense contextually, Paul is facing some law lovers in Galatia, law lovers in the negative sense. When Christ came, he revealed that he's not only the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Savior of the whole world. Seems like one guy once said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And in many ways, this was radical. Jews believed in a Jewish Messiah that would make Israel great again. And Jesus is here and he happens to be for everybody. And his salvation was all encompassing too. He may have not made Israel great again, but he did establish a kingdom. A kingdom in the midst of his people, he says in Luke 17, or a kingdom not of this world, he says in John 18. A kingdom that still exists today while the Israel that he was a part of was demolished and the Rome that was Israel's conquerors also fell. And this kingdom was and is a present reality in people's hearts. And I say people's hearts, not to say it is entirely internal, but it is spiritual in nature and then it bleeds out to the external and to the physical. Because the kingdom is inaugurated time and time again in the gospel accounts and in Acts, usually with the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. John the Baptist said that, Jesus said that, his disciples said that, Paul says that, repent. And it is this idea of repentance that colors our passage today. We're going to look at three movements. We're going to start where this passage starts, and that is, we're going to look at the fleshes, passions, and desires. But then we're going to move to the end of our passage and look at fixing the fall. And then we're finally going to end in the middle of this familiar part, the fruits of the Spirit. The fleshes, passions, and desires, fixing the fall, and then the fruits of the Spirit. First, Paul's attention in our passage is on the fleshes, passions, and desires. And it is important to note 
what the flesh is. Some Bibles will dynamically translate this, which means they hope to convey the meaning of the word, maybe not using the literal word itself. <laughs> and which means they, um, for example, if I told you that I caught you red-handed, I'm not going to use those literal words in another language because I caught you red-handed as a distinctly English or even probably American idiom. But they'll probably say something in another language that might translate to, I caught you in the act. So, all that to say, some Bibles say that this word sarks, which is the Greek word, we'll call it sinful nature. Uh, one of my word studies would state that when the original Greek word flesh is usually translated, it is usually a uh, generally negative referring to making decisions or actions according to self, done apart from faith or independent from God's in working. Thus, what is of the flesh, or carnal, is by definition displeasing to the Lord, even things that seem respectable. In short, flesh generally relates to unaided human effort, decisions, or actions that originate from self and are empowered by self. And so, the, the interesting thing is, according to Paul, that this is not really a big vocabulary word. It's not a word to combat over and say, can we really know what it means? Because Paul begins and says, the acts, or most translations would say here, the works of the flesh are obvious. And I just want to stop right here and say that this was an idea I was kind of pounding on last week, that you and I do not fool people. When we do wrong and are thinking wrong, we usually know what is wrong. Um... I mean, from a young age, I see this in my kids. There is a reason when I tell them, hey, don't mistreat your toy that way, to then take that toy and go up the stairs and hope to be out of sight. <laughs> and then I poke my head around the corner and see they're still mistreating their toy that way. They knew that it was wrong, and so they got out of sight. There is a reason I already got to play the who's lying and who's telling the truth game. <laughs> As I sort out arguments between my boys, because they already know what's right and what's wrong, and they already try to conceal the wrongs they do, usually by doing more wrongs. <laughs> the acts of the flesh are obvious. We know what's wrong. And then Paul lists a few general examples, but he has a reason for his examples. First, he says, sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word is what I've heard call a common junk drawer term. As in, you know, you just throw everything in the junk drawer. The, the Greek word, porneia, is to refer to all of sexual immorality commonly understood in the Scriptures to be against God's law. Basically, everything sexual outside of heterosexual marriage. So this includes sex or sexual acts before marriage, pornography. Jesus would include lusting in Matthew 5. And then actually some Bible manuscripts, what our translations are taken from, would include the word for adultery before the Greek word for sexual immorality. Meanwhile, the next act or work of the flesh Paul would list is impurity. And that is uncleanness. And it's actually the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.24, where Paul says, Therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, there it is, for the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. And then Paul would go on to condemn homosexuality as a sin there. 
And so adultery in some manuscripts, all sexual immorality, and then impurity, maybe a reference to homosexuality. Some say even a, a reference to bestiality. And in case if you don't get the picture, and debauchery. <laughs> some translations use words like licentiousness, lewdness, or sensuality, as opposed to modesty. Now what Paul is doing here is kind of like what he does at the turn of Romans 1-2. to And that is this, he names all these sins that his theological opponents actually will probably agree with him on. So, I want you to hear this, Paul is adamant that these are all sins, and these are all sins that the Galatians dealt with, most Roman citizens dealt with, lived in, and like many of the topics I just touched on, were, were, and even still are seen today, societally acceptable. No one seems to bat an eye about some of these things. Uh, there are groups of people, as you know, who argue for for virtues, if not virtues, at least benefits or goodness surrounding some of these sexual topics. It's healthy. It's normal. It fulfills a person. And so to hear Paul or the Bible condemn things, people wrongfully assume that the Bible is trying to rob joy from someone. But in actuality especially when it comes to sexuality, the Bible is trying to prevent harm from people and instead give them something more satisfying and fulfilling in the way that the Bible has laid out to enjoy sexuality. Paul has likely got his opponents agreeing with him. Maybe they've been reading his letter, and here they start reading this list, and they say, finally, here's something I can agree with, with Paul. Yes, these are all bad sins, and our culture is depraved sexually, doing all these things. And then Paul adds some stuff to the same list. Idolatry and sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy and rage, rivalries, divisions and factions. Uh, this is the Romans 2 turn, because in Romans 1, there he likely had his hearers agreeing with him, and then in Romans 2, Paul turns around and says, you do all the same things. Ouch. In the list here in verse 20 are all things that Paul's really been accusing of them of in the book. He's called into question, if not downright disregard for their understanding of religion, that in order to be saved, one must, sure, love, serve, and follow, and profess, and believe in Jesus, but also be rigid law keepers. And Paul has said, no, you don't need to keep the law. Jesus kept the law and died for you. In Him you're saved. Jesus plus anything will not justify, will not save. And as we read and, and studied last week, He said that they aren't fulfilling the law of love, they were abusing one another. Which are all expressions of hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, rivalries, divisions. Some translations will say here, uh, instead of factions, party spirit. Well, that never happens in Christianity today, I know. Wrong. Um, these are acts of the flesh, and they're actually quite prevalent in churches. So what is Paul getting at here? Is he saying that we should all just unite and let go of every scruple that could separate us? I don't think it's that. I think it goes back to go uh, to what Paul began with. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And so with that in mind, I think it's obvious when someone just wants to be right and out of their flesh they're showing party spirit versus when sometimes 
such as a major point in the book of Galatians, there is time for division. This whole letter from Paul is a warning to the Galatians, law-loving teachers, you're teaching false stuff, you're you're in danger of being severed from Christ. That's rather divisive, Paul. He says, and if you're on the unrepentant side of the fault, it's probably going to lead to physical separation between people fellowshipping with one another. And Paul's not drawing lines in the sand saying, I'm just right, period, shut up. (laughs) I'm dying on a hill and you're all suckers. That would be a selfish way to go about it. But Paul's also not a doormat. Sometimes lines do need to be drawn. You're preaching about Jesus wrongly. That's a line you can't cross and expect us to say that you're one of us. Jesus is kind of our thing. We've got to have him figured out. Does that make sense? There is a time for division. Jesus even says, Do not assume that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus gets in the way of people. He comes between people. Loyalty to Him will have consequences. And so we need to take note of this, that there are people who want to strut their stuff, become martyrs for the cause, and argue until they're blue in the face and cause division. That's sinful. But when Jesus is in the picture, and it's His way or the world's way, and His way is contrary to the world's way, His way brings division if you go His way. you still got to go His way. Does that make sense? Now, Paul finishes the list and says, And envy, some old manuscripts that also influence the King James and New King James also have murder here, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ouch. Are are you anywhere on the list? The whole list from verse 19? Pretty sure I'm on that list in some way, shape, or form. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word practice here intimates that these are common patterns of life. Such persons are in the pattern of doing these things consistently. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, Eternal life. Not only eternal in the quantity sense forever, but also in the quality sense. I don't know why I thought about this. You know, we're talking about eternal life, and as I'm writing this, I, I think about war. But I remember the phrase, and I believe it was for World War I, that it was the war to end all wars. And that spoke of, yes, the magnitude of the war was unparalleled, but it also spoke of what the allies of the war believed they were doing. They thought that the sort of war-hawking militarism of the central powers would only bring more destruction if they weren't stopped. Eternal life is life everlasting, and it's also abundant life in Jesus. And the kingdom of God is is stretched out and explained in its fullness throughout the whole New Testament. We sang a song about it. It's justice, it's joy, it's restoration, it's mercy, it's grace. It's the kingdom that Jesus brought 
and it is in danger of not being inherited by people who practice things on that list. That's what's at stake. How do you fix this? What's the deal? It's kind of excluding, isn't it? I mean, it's like I said, if I was on the list, and I think maybe, if I'm honest, in some areas in my life, I'm, I'm still on the list. How do you get off the list? You die. That's kind of Paul's solution. You die. Down at the, down here at the, the beginning of the last verses here in the chapter, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified. Crucifixion is brutal. It's painful. It hurts. Paul says earlier in Galatians that he's done this. He says in memorably in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. The King James would say, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I missed a song. Oops. <laughs> we sing that sometimes. And to be crucified with Christ is to do no more than what Christ has already done for us. And since we're not hopefully talking about physically being crucified, because then you really would be dead, I believe we are talking about crucifying our will, as Christ did in the garden. In the garden we're told that Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And then verse 44 And in his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground, which is a documented uh, symptom of extreme stress. Jesus is kneeling to pray to God for God to remove the present course of action from him. And this doesn't mean that Jesus has not intended all along to do what he knows he has to do. In the Gospel accounts, he tells his disciples three times about what he's praying about here. The last time in the book of Luke was four chapters prior in Luke 18. He said, then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Look, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything the prophets have written about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will flog him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. It's always interesting to see the disciples' reaction or lack thereof every time he gives that little story. That's great, Jesus. He's just off on one of those crazy tangents. (laughs) But in Jesus' prayer in the garden, we see even both the why of Jesus' crucifixion and then within that why, the resistance of the humanity of Jesus. And it's summed up in one phrase and actually probably one word. It's the word cup, as in take this cup from me. The cup that Jesus is talking about is God's wrath. Over and over in the Old Testament, the cup is referred to God's wrath. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, For this reason He had to be made like His brothers in every way so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And this word atonement can call our minds to the Day of Atonement in Israel's history. It's found in Leviticus 16. It's a day where the early Jews in the time of Moses, they would congregate together and publicly confess and seek atonement for sins. Two goats were brought in. 
One was to be sacrificed, blood spilt to atone for sins, which sounds familiar to Christians. And the other remaining living goat was to have his sins confessed to, and then they would run that goat out of the wilderness as a symbol of saying, this is what God is doing to our sins. He's taking them from the people. Leviticus 16.22, defining the second goat, the scapegoat, Moses writes, it says, the goat will carry on itself all the iniquities into a solitary place and the man will release it into the wilderness. And what the author of Hebrews says is that what Jesus is committing to in, in the garden is crucifixion that fulfills this atonement. Jesus will become the the lamb and where our sins are confessed to. He will become the sacrifice that we deserve. He will take our sins far away from us. And so while on the cross, Jesus crucifies His body, in the garden, I believe, He crucifies His will. And I believe that's the crucifixion that Paul is referring to in Galatians. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. One, he says, I urge you, brothers, on account of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. This is the crucifixion. It's reasonable. Jesus laid down His life for you, so you should lay down your life for Him. What He wants, you want. Let Him have your sins. Let Him give you His righteousness. And then in order to do that, we must... Crucify our flesh, our passions, and our desires. And instead of, and instead, since we live by the Spirit, let us walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. This is how we fix the fall. (laughs) It's how we get off the list. We crucify our passions and our desires and we walk by the Spirit. It's what we talked about last week. Say yes to Him constantly. (laughs) And whenever you say no, apologize and say yes to the next thing. Deny ourselves. seems like Jesus has told us to deny yourselves, pick up your cross. That's crucifixion. And follow Me. We follow Him by the Spirit. And that makes it easy in some ways because He gives us Himself, His Spirit. The same Spirit that made Him righteous can make us righteous if we receive Him. And His Spirit, as we see in Jesus, is one that is not conceited. It's not provoking. It's not envying one another. No, instead, Paul tells us what His Spirit is. In the last chunk of Scripture we're going to look at here in the middle of his text, the fruits of the Spirit. Again, he writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I always have the music in my head whenever I'm reading that. But against such things there is no law. Very important word here. Let's not miss it. What is this? The fruit of the Spirit. What is fruit? It's it's birthed. It's produced. It's not manufactured. Jesus, Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, beginning in verse 4. He says, Remain in Me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus you can do nothing. 
And what Jesus says here should be freeing, should be restful. Because Jesus produces the fruit in us much like a vine produces fruit in branches. What this means is that if you gain anything out of this sermon, thanks goes to Jesus. The fruit was born by Jesus. And you might say, Kevin, you hungered and thirsted after righteousness. You studied diligence. You spent hours writing this and you read lots and that's Christ in me. I put to death, not all the time, but by the grace of God enough of the time, the desires and the passions of doing fruitless things of when I should be studying. I wasn't always successful. (laughs) I was sometimes distracted. But the fruit born, any of it good, is from Jesus. How do I know this? Apart from God, I can do nothing. Fruit is born, not manufactured. Fruit is what happens when I crucify the desires of the flesh so that Christ might have the freedom to live and move in me. And thus the fruit, what's born by Christ in me, by the Spirit, should look like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love, agape, good will, benevolence, preference. If you love one another, you wish and work for the utmost good will. You prefer the other over you. You esteem the other more. And the utmost goodwill sometimes may not be the other person's self-desired will. (laughs) Because you wish them well, you don't wish them self-centeredness. You wish them to be saved and healthy before the Lord. How do we love them best? It's framed in some of these other fruit. Joy. Gladness. It's a disposition. It's a fruit of the Spirit to be at joy. To be at joy when no circumstance allows you to be. Paul says somewhere else, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Not only is it a fruit, it seems to be a command. Good thing the Lord provides the fruit. Peace. Wholeness. Peace of mind. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This comes from knowing that you are God's son or daughter. He is your father who loves you. This comes from knowing that whatever God calls you to do in big or little, you are provided for. Peace. Your satisfaction in life and your contentment comes from Him. Patience. I don't have time to explain that one. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Patience. Forbearance. Long-suffering. You're patient with others, which I know always happens among Christians, brothers and sisters. I know none of you are never impatient with other folks. Trying to catch up to be like you. I mean, trying to be more like Christ. Also, a fruit of the Spirit is to be patient with circumstances, trusting God will act when He wishes to act. Kindness. One dictionary says, we have no term that quite carries the notion of kind and and good, but it is a kindness that meets needs and avoids human cruelty. It's the same word that actually Paul uses in Romans 2.4, that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Does your kindness spur others to be more like Him? It's a fruit of the Spirit. This kindness informs the love we have for one another. Goodness, how is this different from kindness? One definition says 
This goodness is intrinsic goodness, especially as a personal quality. So kindness is what we do to each other by God's Spirit. But goodness is who we are by God's Spirit. Good people. We don't rip people off. We don't tear people down with our words. We don't lord over people, but we're good. Faithfulness. Trust. Confidence. Fidelity. Faith in Christ is a fruit of the Spirit. I think many of us take that word faith and make it a stagnant one-time thing or a stagnant quality. I have faith in God. Faith, though, is a fruit of the Spirit that should increase in our walk with Him. We want our faith in Him to, to grow. We want to be faithful with a little so we can be faithful with a lot. Even as the Woodland Friends Church, God, you've provided Woodland Friends with the people we have, the money we bring in, the ministry we do. How can we do more? How can we step out in faith more knowing that you're a faithful provider? Knowing that we can be faithful to you. Gentleness, mildness, meekness. Listen to this definition. Meekness or gentle strength, which expresses power, with reserve and gentleness. Gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. I think about Christ, and I've said this before, but Christ ushered in a kingdom of God, and He did it without violence. He did it with peace. He did it with service. He did it gently. And it was and is the most fruitful kingdom. Gentleness, it expresses power with reserve and gentleness. This last one, I think we all have down, self-control, right? Maybe not. (laughs) Self, sorry, I couldn't help myself. Get it? Okay. Self-mastery, self-restraint, a fruit of the Spirit. It's directly related to putting to death your passions and desires that war against the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I love that, that the Spirit gives you. It's a fruit of the Spirit to restrain the desires and passions that wish to war against the Spirit. I think about what Jude who writes in his letter that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you unblemished. Wow. (laughs) In His glorious presence with great joy. God's got His work cut out for Him. Self-control. God... His Holy Spirit is able to keep you from stumbling. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what walking by the Spirit looks like. When Paul says, crucify the flesh, we're putting to death our desires and passions to make way for these fruit. We're pruning so the fruit might grow. And when it does, love lives in me. Joy lives in me. Peace lives in me. Patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and and by the grace of God, self-control lives in me. And so I want to begin, I want to say with what I began with, these lists are not meant to be exhaustive. But I think when we read them, they can be exhausting. Uh, what, What Paul's been arguing against is religiosity or this idea of keep these laws, do these rules, then you're saved. When the gospel is Christ died for you, Christ gave you His Spirit so you can be righteous as He is righteous. And the way we be righteous is to live into His Spirit, not keep rules. It's the difference between reading a textbook and filling out a test versus actually apprenticing. (laughs) 
See, Christ calls disciples, not absent, distant students. Hear the difference? And so the important thing is, while these fruits are a good general picture of what the Spirit does do in us, the idea is not to get out a pad and pen and write down nine items and get them out every day and anxiously say, okay, am I producing love? Am I producing peace? Uh, I don't have much joy. No, there goes my self-control. Is the Holy Spirit even in me? How frustrating. No. Paul's sketching out a picture and he says, on your road, this is what it's going to look like. You'll know that you're getting in the right neighborhood when you see these things. But walking by the Spirit, following the Spirit, saying yes to the Spirit, that's how we put to death those sinful passions and desires and leaning into what He wants us to be. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, I just look at this list of the fruits of the Spirit and oh, how our world needs those things. We see enough of the other lists that Paul had in our text today. But Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us fresh. We trust that you're with us every day. Help us to to unlock your power by simple obedience, to saying yes to the things you call us to. Remind us in those moments, especially those moments of temptation, whenever you give us the plain option, you can choose right or wrong here. And I have given you the power to choose right. Help us to help us to choose the right. And whenever we do mess up, help us to choose the next right thing, to seek forgiveness. Father, we do pray for greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in ourselves, in our churches, in our in our brothers and sisters in Christ across the nation and world. So help us to be examples of that, to point people to you, not to show people how good we are, but to show people how good you are and the sort of transformation you've made in sinners like us. Uh, We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.